China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Howard Wong, Associate Political Scientist at the Rand Corporation. Today we'll be discussing his recent paper, Security is a Prerequisite for Development, Consensus Building Toward a New Top Priority in the Chinese Communist Party. Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. As an initial question, I, I wanted to ask about your own background. How did you get to RAND and what led you to this focus on China, Chinese foreign policy, Chinese domestic politics? So I was born in Taipei and my parents immigrated uh, to the San Francisco Bay Area when I was pretty young. So I, I grew up with the heritage speaker's language ability and like colloquial awareness of the CCP looming across the Taiwan Street. But knew I wanted to study uh, study China, knew I wanted to study global affairs. I was a pretty unfocused grad student when I wandered into a class on the the PLA, uh, China's military, taught by Lonnie Henley. And I walked out the first day knowing this is what I needed to do with my career. So today, my primary research area is researching PLA strategy capabilities, uh, uh, development over time. But I come to the bigger questions of Chinese Communist Party politics and policy writ large uh, from its impact on how it uses force. So for CCP domestic politics, I remember being really struck by a Chinophile piece out around the 19th Party Congress um, by Jessica Bakian, uh, Oliver Mountain. Uh, why do we keep writing about Chinese politics as if we know more than we do? Right. I was really, I was really taken aback by the extent to which CCP politics and policy are a, are a bit of an epistemological puzzle. Right. What do we really know, and how do we know what we know? It's a, it's a serious research question and a serious policy question. And the fact that the stakes of, uh, of getting China right are global that only adds to how important I think the research is. Yeah, I remember that that paper by Jessica and Oliver uh, very well, and it it stirred up the. The type of debate it should have it should have stirred up, but here we are, peering into the black box. And I'm glad you you tried to say something, even if the even if we're we're doing it imperfectly. So let me let me use that clunky segue to ask you about the paper we're going to discuss today, which is looking at how the party has thought about, conceptualized, and articulated the way it thinks about a balance between growth and security. So can I first ask you? What motivated you to start this line of research? Had you seen something? Was this a puzzle you'd been thinking about for a while? What got you to put pen to paper? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think especially after the 19th Party Congress, and we saw a lot of what some would characterize as aggressive foreign policy behaviors coming out of China. I, th- I think in the in at least English language research, there was a pretty broad recognition that uh, security interests are getting more important under Xi Jinping. Right. We saw with the introduction of the overall national security concept in 2014 that he was giving speeches about a broad idea of security that reached beyond traditional military or state security focuses and touched economic security, food security, culture and society security. It, it keeps growing, right? There were 11 security areas when he introduced it. There's now 16. I'm sure there will be more within a couple of years. There were two things that I really wanted to add to the discussion, to the research that was that was going on about the role of security writ large in the CCP. First, I wanted to provide a way of thinking about how we know what we know. 
what are the old formulations and policies that new ideas like the overall national security concept were responding to. But second, I also really wanted to question how powerful Xi Jinping really was, right? Um, or that researchers writing in English might imagine that he, he might be. It's essentially questioning whether his speeches uh, about policy are from the outset direct policy determinations that you know the rest of the Chinese political apparatus follows. If that's true, then we should see a really tight alignment between his words and Chinese policy with, uh, with close to no latency between the declaration and the implementation. But if, if it's not the case, then analysts need to take Xi's public statements as powerful indicators, but not the singularly overriding determining variable setting Chinese policy. I wonder if I could ask you just a follow up on that, because I think that's a really interesting way of assessing Xi's power. It's funny that after the 20th Party Congress or leading up to it, we were continuing to see a discourse by outside analysts. I'm sure I'm guilty of this as well, as continuing to talk about, you know, Xi's, uh, you know, consolidation of power. And it felt, I mean, we had the same discussion in the aftermath of the 19th Party Congress. You know, this the verb of consolidating, Xi has been, if you were to hear Western analysts has been on the road to consolidation, you know, for for a very long time now, and it's not clear what the endpoint is or how we're assessing, you know, movements along the path. Can you talk a bit about the delta between, you know, that latency issue that you that you discussed? I find that really interesting because one of the ways we've been assessing Xi's power is in a relative sense, that is relative to previous leaders, right? So Xi Jinping is the most powerful leader since fill in the blanks. Dung, Mao, but you're that what you just articulated is a different standard for assessing power, which is in a more absolute sense, right? So the tighter the cluster between statement and action up and down the, the, the hierarchy, the more powerful we might be able to ass- assess him. Is the, am I reading that right? And and do you think that's a better metric for how we should assess Xi's power than a historic relative comparison. Or they they could be two entirely different things as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. The the idea of the latency is a little bit of a is a little bit of a straw man meant to prove a separate point. The fact that realistically there's not going to be zero latency or even extremely low latency. I think that it's the correct a research approach to look at Xi's power um, within the Chinese political context in comparison to his predecessors within that same political context. But a lot of the research that exists in the open source focuses on him in particular, what he thinks, who are the people that he's worked with, and what are the speeches that he's given. And of course, leadership matters. Leadership is extremely important, but how he relates to the rest of the system, I think, is not very well understood. I include myself in the outside experts who don't really know what it means that Xi Jinping is powerful. Does it mean that he gives a go order militarily and then the entire PLA snaps to attention for a declaration of war? Probably. Does it mean that he gives a go order for the PLA uh, ground forces or the army that have been historically dominant, that they'll give up their bureaucratically uh, dominant position within the PLA so that the force can progress into a really joint posture and develop modern capabilities. We've seen more mixed evidence of that. Does it mean that he can just come down and make severe crackdowns on China's economy um, and uh, technology companies? Yes, for a while. 
right? But what are, are there countervailing forces within China's political uh, system? Are there domestic restraints on Xi Jinping's power? I think that there are. Final question, thought, and then we'll move on. But I find this really interesting because I think the historical analogies of Xi's power have run out of their utility. And I think we now need to be moving to a, a next phase of assessment of Xi Jinping. And, and what I like about what you just said, or I find really interesting, and I think this is a really interesting research project and something that we're toying around with as well, is I think we need to disaggregate Xi's power into specific areas, right? Because you can see that in, for example, you know, within the realm of party discipline and corruption, he's very powerful, right? He can mobilize the relevant authorities and he can take down very significant people. Military reorganization clearly demonstrated a level of power that previous leaders hadn't, you know, hadn't been able to muster. As you say, Technology regulation or, or, or political actions guised as regulation in the technology sphere, clearly very powerful. But then there's whole other areas where Xi Jinping clearly either assesses that he, he faces headwinds, is unwilling, unable to muster the relevant political capital you know, to drive through reforms. And you can see that in a whole host of fiscal and tax areas where Xi Jinping looks like he's, you know, Hua Guofeng or something, you know, just completely unable to fundamentally maintain political power and push through these reforms. So I think it does open up a really interesting puzzle of, of what is a disaggregated model or map of Xi Jinping's power look like? And what does that tell us, as you say, in some of the key areas of, you know, maybe there we should expect low latency in you know, decisions of the use of military force, but we may expect to continue to see, you know, high latency in in other areas, you know, of key significance. But I feel right now we've got this very kind of murky, fuzzy idea of, you know, Xi's power, partly because we're using benchmarks of, you know, Xi to Mao or Xi to Deng. And I just don't know what the hell does that tell you about, you know, the prospect for fiscal reform? Yeah, no, I, I really agree. Yeah, I realize that was more of a statement than a question. So let me move on to a question now, which is, you know, if we can get into the guts of this paper, on a methodological note, one of the key tools that you've utilized is is a TIFA. And I, I wonder if you can first, before we get into the actual conclusions and analysis of this paper, just describe to listeners, you know, what is a TIFA? What role does it serve? And how did you utilize variegations in TIFA phrasing to do the work of this paper? Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, TIFA, there's there's well-established literature. I know that many guests on um, on this podcast have talked about TIFA. It's essentially a key phrase or a formulation, a phrase that is uh, indicative of a policy position or prescription that is repeated almost exactly or, in fact, exactly widely throughout the Chinese political system. It's really hard to overstate the importance of TIFA within China's bureaucratic structure. I begin my, uh, my research with the assumption that China's political structure is typical in that it'll have coordination problems horizontally and principal agent problems vertically, right? Just essentially saying that it's hard for the whole party or government structure to do things because all the different pieces have their own interests. So when the party leader advances a new policy, he needs to secure support from other party elites and implementing bureaucrats, the risk not being overt political challenges, but rather that the desired policies will be poorly implemented or, or captured by other interests. 
the way he secures that support or the way he knows that he secured the support is by promulgating TIFA. The issuing and repeating of TIFA in political uh, or in official media and party documents is a sort of call and response between a leader who demands loyalty and then other party leaders uh, or local implementers who are expected to, to biao tai, right, or to demonstrate loyalty to the leader by repeating that vision. So the, the bottom line is that if a CCP leader advances a new policy idea in a speech or other outlet, it'll be in a TIFA, and we can determine whether that policy is accepted and implemented by the degree to which the rest of the official media landscape repeats it. Now, sort of moving on in this, maybe now we can take that building block of a TIFA and bring it to bear on this issue uh, under discussion in the paper, which is how does the party message what its key priorities are or the balance of those priorities? And so I wonder if you can now talk to us about how in the post-Mao period and leading up to Xi Jinping, previous leaders Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, have articulated through TIFAs what the relevant priority of, of policy is, that being either economic development and growth or, or security. I think it was definitely a, a heuristic in the sort of media and probably for most people with a casual knowledge of China that all that matters is growth, right? I think that that's what probably most people would have said for a very long time and policy coming out of Beijing seem to confirm that. But I wonder if you could give us a kind of a potted history, 1978 to 2012. What was the balance like between development and and security? And and how did the party leverage TIFA to communicate that? Yeah. Yeah. So the CCP has a really long history or a reasonably long history of prioritizing economic development over other objectives. Um, Like you said, really since 1978 or so, Deng Xiaoping was moving the party on from Mao Zedong's earlier assessment, itself a TIFA, that the world was one of war and revolution. Mao's idea was that the party needed to be prepared to fight near-term wars and maintain that posture at all times. But Deng advanced another TIFA, still in use today, that peace and development are the theme of the times or the trend of the times. So the CCP doesn't need to invest its resources as much into preparing for near-term war. This doesn't mean that security is not important, but rather that economic development is going to be the dominant priority for however long. And so this TIFA of peace and development or the trend of the times became the driving logic of other approaches that became TIFA themselves, like hide and bide. We can see the primacy of economic development in legislation passed in this era, right? Uh, I think one of the leading examples is the uh, 1997 National Defense Law explicitly saying, while focusing on economic development, while economic development remains the focus, China will strengthen its national defense, coordinating defense with development. There's always been coordination of the two. There's always been interest in both priorities, but there was always a clear establishment that economic development has to come first. This was really codified uh, further in the 16th Party Congress in 2002. That year, Jiang Zemin's work report included a new TIFA that he had introduced earlier that year, saying development must be the party's top priority for governance and national rejuvenation. 
So we know that this was a particularly influential TIFA from its prevalence in leading documents. Every single party Congress work report since 2002 has cited it, and it's been in nearly every five-year plan since its introduction. So for over a decade between Jiang Zemin and Xi Jinping, China's guiding policy was decisively development first. Howard, can you talk a bit about how the external environment or the party's perception of the external environment interacts with these TIFAs on development? You know, I can imagine that there's some amount of of a TIFA which is also geared towards external messaging. And, you know, certainly in the 2000s was coinciding with this kind of peaceful rise narrative, which is, you know, indirectly saying, look, don't worry about us. You know, we're focused on domestic rejuvenation, you know, economic growth, which also helped reinforce a more benign assessment of China in foreign capitals around the world. So both how does the external environment shape these TIFA? And then am I right in thinking that some of the value of these TIFA was was as an external messaging, trying to sort of continue, you know, a benign external environment for China? Yeah, the external environment piece is really, really influential in how TIFA are shaped. I think largely because it moves the members of the Chinese Communist Party. It moves the party elites into uh, calling for and then uh, accepting a new policy approach. One of the most well-documented instances of this was a debate in 1999 about whether or not Deng Xiaoping had been wrong to say that uh, peace and development were the trend of the times, right? At that time, the United States was talking about uh, missile defense in East Asia that Chinese Communist Party leaders saw as containment and restrictive. At the time, uh, they were also looking down what uh, U.S. military capabilities from the Gulf War and from the accidental bombing of the embassy in Belgrade. There was a, a sense among party leaders that, in fact, war and revolution remained uh, the characteristic of the world, that a war between the United States and China was impending in part because of uh, our supposed rapacious imperialism. And Jiang Zemin did ultimately settle the, uh, the debate in favor of peace and development, but with additional caveats that the overall security environment for China would not be as peaceful or as secure as previously assessed and that China would need to recalibrate and slightly increase its emphasis on security, although development remained uh, the priority. Now let's get into the good stuff, which is the Xi Jinping era. Um, you earlier on in our discussion talked about the this national security outlook, which, by the way, I've noticed we still have not honed in on the right way to translate it. Uh, it's either the holistic, the overall, or the comprehensive uh, concept or outlook. So um, mix and match, Mad Libs style, but anyone can take their pick. Um, so you'd started to discuss how things shifted in the Xi Jinping period, but I wonder if you could take us through it a little bit more granularity First of all, if you can get in the head of Xi Jinping, what do you think was driving his view that China needed to both rebalance the dyad between growth and development? um, And what were some of the factors that you think were shaping that decision? Was this a deterioration of the external environment? Was this a prediction of where the external environment was going? Was this the summation of 
you know, a really bad couple of years for Chinese, you know, domestic stability by the time she took power. What what was it, do you think? Anything I could say here would be extremely low confidence. It's really hard to know exactly what's going through Xi Jinping's head. It's possible that uh, 2012 through 2014, he saw heightened frictions with the United States or uh, with other countries and needed to pursue a policy of retrenchment. It's equally possible that around this time, he was formulating greater ambitions that was likely to solicit more international blowback. It's also possible he has always just personally had a very combative approach to international politics. I think Peter Martin's book talks about Xi Jinping being known from from his early days as being a somewhat hardliner in terms of China's restoration internationally and the the conflicts or the costs that may be involved in that particular vision of national rejuvenation, one that's zero sum with the United States and cannot tolerate in what they would call an American hegemon. It's hard to know exactly why he came to this assessment that the overall national security concept was necessary. But what we do know is that he introduced this concept and pressed it repeatedly for years. What else were we seeing um, across the the sort of 10 years that Xi Jinping has been in power that also indicated that there was a you know more pronounced rebalancing between growth and security or development and security? I can get into my paper. The, the, the bottom line is that from 2014 to 2019, Xi Jinping won a debate within the CCP and changed the party's official guidance from development first that Jiang Zemin had said to instead taking an integrated, a balanced approach to both development and security interests. We see in 2014, Xi Jinping repeatedly uses major foreign policy speeches, uh, for example, at the Central Foreign Affairs Work Conference to advance new TIFA, including the overall national security concept that reframe how the party talks about uh, the importance of economic development. What we see through the speeches is an evolution of the phrases that will eventually become the TIFA, the integrated approach to development and security, or the coordinated or composite, or this is one of those phrases that's pretty hard to, to translate. But essentially, the argument that he lays out in 2014 is that development and security, instead of having separate priorities, should be considered equal and interdependent. He pairs them as the two major issues on which the party must give equal weight, because development enables security, but security ensures development. And so this is a new way, he asserted, that the party should think about economic development. But this is also where things start to get a little bit messy and signs of the de- uh, debate emerge, right? The TIFA call and response that we would expect to see uh, when a top leader introduces the new guiding line doesn't really happen for a couple of years. If anything, we, we seem to see pushback. So after Xi Jinping gives these speeches in 2014, the fifth plenum communique in 2015 it does say that the uh, that the party will uh, simultaneously attend to both development and security without stating the priority between them. But then it twice says that development is the top priority. Then the 13th five-year plan released in 2016 it describes development first as the guiding ideology for the party, uh, which is an escalation from how the TIFA was used in the 12th five-year plan. Even the 19th party Congress that Xi Jinping delivered this is a this is a group project. A lot uh, there's a lot of authors in every party congress work report, and even in Xi Jinping's 19th party congress work report, um, it asserted that unswervingly adhering to the development first uh, line 
was necessary to realize the Chinese dream, right? Clearly, the party is responding to Xi, but they're responding by repeating the old Tifa instead of his Tifa. This is what pushback looks like within the CCP. But then we have some indications then that things started to shift around the end of uh, around uh, 2017, right? Facing a, the threat of a trade war with the United States, CCP leaders began uh, reassessing their security environment. Are we still in a period of strategic opportunity? The new assessment uh, that Xi Jinping delivered in uh, December 2017 was that the world is experiencing profound changes unseen in a century, characterized by unprecedented challenges and unprecedented opportunities. Chen Wenqing, at the time the Minister of State Security and who has since been elevated post the 20th Party Congress, wrote a People's Daily article explaining that the party had recalibrated the relationship between development and security in response to these unprecedented challenges, all but saying that Xi Jinping was able to use the new security assessment to rally support for his TIFA of an integrated approach to development and security. This is exactly what we would expect to see, changes in the external environment, driving, uh, motivating changes within the party elite to accept a new TIFA. We don't see the full call and response uh, demonstrating that he won the debate until about 2019 to 2020. The 2019 fourth plenum communique, the 2025th plenum communique, Apollo Borough study session on the 14th five-year plan and the 14th five-year plan itself, I think released in 2021. All of these reaffirm that the party adopts an integrated approach to development and security. This is enshrining the new TIFA. But notably, none of them say that development is the top priority. In the years following, we get we also get a slate of, uh, of new security legislation, uh, reinforcing the integrated development security approach, including a new national defense law. It describes a coordinated, balanced, and compatible approach to development and security, which is a sharp contrast to the, the 97 law's explicit focus on development over national security. Howard, I'm, I'm really glad you highlighted this discrepancy or this lack of cohesion in those first few years after this rebalancing was underway. It's one of the things I found most interesting about the paper is I would have said before reading your paper that she ushered in this reevaluation of the balance, but I wasn't aware until reading your paper of this non-fluidity which in the first few years, which, which as you say, shows that there was a, a non-alignment, to put it um, mildly. And actually, after I read your paper, I went back and started looking at statements. And you're right, you can see almost this schizophrenic nature, you know, after sort of 2014, 2015, which is really interesting. You know, you can see them, you know, sometimes like Xi Jinping will say national security is the top priority, but other times you'll see them continue to, to express that, that development is the top priority. So it seems like the system wasn't really clear as to, you know, as to how to do this. And I think it gets to my next question, which is, what does this mean functionally for the party state now that there seems to be a coalescence around this kind of integration model of security and development? Like, how does that help me adjudicate and make decisions as a policymaker in Beijing? Unless I'm in the room with the dear leader and able to hear his thoughts, if I'm a party secretary like, what the heck do I do with this? What do you think this means functionally for how I assess 
on balance, do I do I shift a marginal unit of capital towards growth, or do I take that marginal unit of, of capital or time and and push it towards you know securing the municipality from you know Catholic subversionists or whatever? How, how do you think this functionally filters through decision making? I suspect it's vague. I suspect that even party cadres uh, at the provincial level, um, maybe even the national level wrestle with what precisely it means, all it's ever going to be is a, it's itsubuishi, right? It's painting in broad strokes. It's a very broad guideline. So we don't have, without exquisite access to the CCP's policy uh, decision-making system, we're, we're not going to be able to prove what policy changes resulted in um, from this TIFA change. But we can gain pretty reasonable confidence uh, from looking at what well-connected uh, Chinese academics are saying. After the rollout of the new TIFA, there seemed to be a Chinese scholar, leading Chinese scholars in both economic and uh, economic development and security fields um, coalesced around a message suggesting that's what the party line is, that economic growth is going to decline and that uh, at the same time that China's foreign policy, its external policy is going to be more risk tolerant. And that going forward, economic, domestic economic interests are going to have less weight in shaping China's foreign policy. I actually suspect that we already got to see what this means uh, or what this looks like in practice. Right Around the same time that party documents were embracing this, um, this new integrated development security TFAP, the CCP demonstrated really remarkable, remarkably aggressive economic and military behavior. Um, we saw China's government uh, undertake severe corporate crackdowns, especially on its technology sector, to reassert party authority over capital flows uh, and ensure its own political security. And at the same time, we saw the PLA initiate military provocations with almost all of its neighbors. Um, highly unusual, and that got a lot of attention in uh, U.S. media and analysis. At the highest level, though, uh, I think it's worth noting that what it means for the 14th five-year plan is the 14th five-year plan is noticeably less growth oriented than the 13th five-year plan. Uh, according to, to one research outlet, it is 30% fewer growth targets and puts a lot more emphasis on building in uh, domestic resiliency and self-sufficiency that can resist exogenous shock. If we take China's steps in economic policy and military force employment as a whole, right? if we take a holistic look at this, it it looks like CCP leaders are dialing up a significantly more belligerent uh, external policy, while at the same time insulating China's economy from foreign countermeasures, especially economic countermeasures. I think that's what it means when Chinese scholars say the CCP is becoming more risk tolerant. Right? It's a program of economic resilience designed to, or probably designed to resist the toolkit that the United States and its allies leverage against Iran, against North Korea, and most recently against Russia for its unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. A good point too, Howard, or one that I'd like to sort of see explored a little bit more on a more of a methodologically rigorous framework for Beijing's risk acceptance or tolerance. Because one of the things, and I could be wrong on this, Part of risk appetite is a matter not of external actors assessing whether you have taken more risk, but whether or not you, in fact, think you're taking on more risk. And there are 
individual instances where, and I take Hong Kong for an example, I've heard external analysts say that the imposition of the national security law demonstrates that China doesn't care about its reputation and it's willing to take on more risk. Now, that could be true, but but another way to think about it is Beijing felt like it had, I mean, that inaction was the greater risk, right? And that if, and again, I'm, this is not a normative judgment in support of the national security law. It's just to say, I would imagine in their head, the view was inaction is actually the greater risk here, and we have a full-blown political crisis emerging. So I think there's a, a useful exercise in how does how and where does the party, do we think that the party is basically saying, I have to take on more aggressive action in a defensive way, because if I don't essentially you know, we will see sort of deep strategic losses. And where, on the other hand, are we actually seeing that Beijing assessing, you know, just becoming more willing to tolerate friction, you know, as a as a normal course of business? And I feel like, again, here's where we don't have a particularly good disaggregated model. And, and I noticed some people just saying, well, that shows that they're more risk tolerant. And sometimes I think, yeah, that makes sense. And other times I think, you know, go back to Hong Kong for an example. I, I heard some pretty credible evidence that in the weeks and months leading up to the national security law, that you know Beijing was um, making direct engagements with you know financial services companies in Hong Kong to basically reassure them and make sure that they were not going to leave, which indicates that it wasn't a sort of you know YOLO screw it, we're going we're gonna to do a national security law, that they were actually temperature checking. And so maybe they implemented a national security law because they were pretty comfortable that they knew exactly what the costs were. I, keep, I, I don't mean to make everything sound about the Hong Kong example, but I think about it as somewhat paradigmatic because I've heard it referenced so many times as an example of greater risk tolerance by Beijing. And I always think, well, I just want to be careful how much I'm extrapolating from that case study because we might be learning the wrong lessons vis-a-vis China's risk tolerance. I, I really like this point. I really, really agree with what you're uh, with what you're saying here. This gets to the epistemological question, right? What do we really know, and how do we know it? If we were to strictly look at their behaviors, certainly we could make arguments either way that more aggressive foreign policy activity means that they're comfortable accepting the, the, the costs of it, or that they are so anxious facing pressures at home that they feel the need to uh, lash out uh, abroad. Arguments can be made either way. What I think really matters is looking at how they talk about it. When we have Chinese scholars writing that an increased attention to security means an increased interest in accepting risk. And then we also see that translate over into uh, PLA writings. There's an excellent piece of research from the China Aerospace Studies Institute uh, uh, written by Marcus Clay and Roderick Lee called, I think, Unmasking the Devil in the Chinese Details, looking at changes in the 2017 editions and the 2020 editions of the Science and Military Strategy which is, of course, uh, one of the, the leading textbooks that all PLA officers will have, to, uh, will have to read as part of their training. There's subtle wording changes in how the PLA talks about crisis in between 2017 and 2020, which is, of course, also the time period uh, we're looking at for this, new, uh, this TFOP. The linguistic changes that we see is the 2017 edition talking about managing crisis, guan, guan wei ji, to the 2020 edition talking about Kong to manage and control the crisis. There seems to be a, this is a, this is a really sharp departure 
in a lot of PLA, a lot of PLA literature. We see the PLA often being risk averse and wanting to tamp down crises. The increasing acceptance of uh, or comfort of the presence of crises, especially the idea that they will be controlled, that they'll be dialed up or down. I think this feeds the argument that it's the Chinese scholars themselves that think that they are accepting increased risk. Just to plug our Interpret China project for a second, because we just translated a bunch of documents on Chinese scholars assessing crisis management, crisis de-escalation. And it's the first time I had read in depth sort of any recent assessments. And I think one of the points I found so interesting was I imagine there is a when we hear crisis management, we are we think that what the Chinese mean is they want to de-escalate crises. What I think we took away from reading the papers was no, they want to navigate crises to achieve outcomes, right? So that may mean de-escalation at times, but but not necessarily. And the point being is you still have your eye on the ball of the larger strategic outcome that you want to achieve. And I found that very, very interesting that they were thinking along the lines of how do we still win in a crisis? And as you say, that that may mean higher you know, higher tolerance for escalation, friction. And to the point we were talking about a minute ago, that's where there, there's probably an interesting matrix to be drawn up of where China is more risk tolerant and, and what's the supporting evidence. Where is China still relatively risk averse? You know, where are they utilizing risk in an offensive fashion and where are they taking on risk as a sort of a defensive, you know, if we don't take action, then, you know, some, you know, X, Y, Z bad outcome will occur. And I still, in my own mind, feel very, very fuzzy about this. But hopefully this is one of the projects RAND will help answer for us in the coming uh, months and years. Well, anyway, Howard, I, I feel like we just scratch the surface of this really rich paper. And, and already, you know, from this discussion, I feel like there's three or four other research projects in my head coming out of this. You know, how do we use really close analysis of policy statements to better understand, you know, as you were talking about the, the latency and what that tells us about Xi's power? How do we disaggregate risk, risk tolerance? How do we disaggregate various places where Xi's power is greater or, or less? And what does that tell us about, you know, future decision making? This is this is a really rich conversation and a really great paper. So I want to thank you for uh, being willing to come on and discuss it. And I'm really looking forward to your future research. Yeah, Jude, I, I really, uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.